0: Welcome to the fifth episode of the Historic Present podcast hosted by myself, Charlie Gordon, and my good friend, Jonah Howe. Jonah. Hello. Hello.
1: For today's history section, we are absolutely delighted to welcome on to the Historic Present podcast historian, Mr. James Holland. James, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, sir. Due to the latest update of coronavirus restrictions we do unfortunately find all three of us on Zoom this morning so my apologies if there are any
2: so Well that's... Zoom isn't it? I mean it, it does mean that we can actually see each other it's not yeah. quite the same as being in the same room but it's not quite no. I'll just imagine what Hitler would have done if he'd had Twitter and Zoom. I
0: can only only imagine. Yeah,
2: exactly.
3: Trump 2.0, Trump on steroids.
4: Yeah, 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 quite.
1: So let's get into it and let's set the scene. It's 1933 and, as we left off with the last episode, Hitler is now Chancellor. Like we said, between 1918 and 1933, Adolf Hitler rose from being an obscure and demoralized member of the defeated German army to become the all-powerful Führer, dictator of Germany, with almost unlimited power and an overwhelming ambition to make Germany great once again. That's a slogan we're getting to know. But how do we get from relative peace in 1933 the outbreak of a second world war just six years later in 1939? How far was Hitler responsible for the outbreak of the second world war? Well, Hitler was never secretive about his plans for Germany. As early as 1925, he had laid out in his book, Mein Kampf, my struggles, what he would do if the Nazis ever achieved power in Germany. So these were his main aims. Number one to abolish the Treaty of Versailles. Like many Germans, Hitler believed that the Treaty of Versailles was unjust. We have covered this in earlier episodes, so we we have a pretty good understanding of why he may felt hard done by. He hated the treaty and called the German leaders who had signed it the November criminals. The treaty, to him, was a constant reminder of their defeat in the First World War and their humiliation by the Allies. By the time he came to power in Germany, some of the terms had already been changed. For example, Germany had stopped making reparation payments altogether. However, most points were still in place. Number two, to expand German territory, to gain living room in the East, Lebensraum, and to unite all German speakers. As we covered, the Treaty of Versailles had taken away territory from Germany. Hitler wanted to get that Germany back. He wanted Germany to unite with Austria as well. He also wanted German minorities in other countries, such as Czechoslovakia, to rejoin Germany. And finally, as well as to make Germany a great and strong nation once again, Hitler also sought to defeat communism. Hitler was undoubtedly anti-communist, He believed that the Bolsheviks had helped to bring about the defeat of Germany in the First World War. He also believed that the Bolsheviks wanted to take over Germany. So there we have it Hitler's main points going into the early 1930s, and that he would set about over the next six years or so working through trying to achieve his ideal Germany. And in 1933, in his first year of Chancellery, he does something quite major. He takes Germany out of the League of Nations and begins rearming. Charlie, talk to us about this. Talk to us. About
0: uh, yeah. So, well, um, Hitler was, you know, obviously very keen to to gain Lebensraum and living space and create this expansionist empire, but you know. He at first, the first thing he had to do was to expand the military and rearm. So you know, in 1934 there was a League of Nations conference about disarmament, and that collapsed. So that probably suggested that the other countries weren't so serious about disarmament. So effectively, it was the question why why should Germany be? And so thousands of unemployed workers were drafted into the army. Um, 100,000 soldiers under the Treaty of Versailles increased to 950,000 soldiers, and um, military air- aircraft increased from 36 to 8,250. Um, so th- that's just an outline of what Hitler was effectively about. Um, and the real question we have to start, we have to ask ourselves, and I'm going to ask you, James, is why was Hitler um, allowed to get away with rearmament?
2: yeah so um well this this is good questions i mean you have to remember that hitler comes to power in early in january 1933 um with a a moment of incredible good fortune because because the economic crisis the great depression that sort of gripped the the western world has just started to turn back you know it is he's he's on the kind of the wave is sort of coming back to the shore and and the economic crisis is just beginning to pass so he's able to kind of sort of capitalise on that the great thing about about, about ex- expansion military expansion is suddenly uh, you know what, you, what you're doing is you're sort of creating jobs effectively and you're also uh, appealing to the german people because um obviously the humiliation of versailles and all the rest of it um you know Germany had been a very sort of proud nation, albeit a very new nation, only formed uh, uh, created in, 19, um, in 1871. Um, so he's able to sort of tap into that. I think the reason why other countries don't um, really do anything about it is because what are they What are they going to do? I mean, you know, Britain has a 10-year plan, for example, in place where, you know, it's not going to expand its military particularly other than what it's basically doing. Um, it's just sort of assuming that there's not going to be any war. So there's just no stomach for it at all. Within Europe, everyone's and you have to remember the effect of 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 the Great Depression. Now, you guys are probably too young to kind of remember um, what happened in two thousand eight when we had the financial crisis here. But you're absolutely not. You know, you're living through the pandemic at the moment. You understand what it is to have a world in turmoil, a political turmoil, and also have an economic crisis, which is what we're facing at the moment. Yeah. So, if you if you then transport the economic crisis that we're in at the moment because of COVID, transport that back and then kind of sort of, you know, times it by 10. Then you're starting to get a kind of an appreciation of where other leading nations in the world are, from the United States through to France, Britain, all the leading powers. And suddenly there's a country that uh, that is a kind of of neighbour that is starting to kind of sort of mildly sabre rattle. Are you going to go right? That's it. We've got to send in the military and stop them, or are you going to think Hitler's hey, a bit weird, isn't he? he's a bit odd? You know, he's not going to last. You know, at least he was elected in. It is a sort of democratic process. You know, we've slightly got better things to worry about right now. That's right, and I yeah. think that is that is a, a large part of it. It's it's not kind of, um, it's not that there is a, a kind of a, a sort of lack of moral backbone. I don't think. I think it's more that. Each country's got its own problems, massive problems that it's got to deal with. And dealing with Germany is kind of just a long way down the list. And there is also, I think, at the same time, there is a growing realisation that Versailles was too harsh. That actually, it was debilitatingly so. And so if the Germans want to kind of sort of, you know, build up their strength again, you know, so be it. You also have to remember that in the 1930s there was a crisis of democracy anyway i mean the number of democratic countries in europe is actually comparatively small uh um and there is a rising movement of uh, which again you know you're seeing at the moment this is exactly what you're getting from kind of trumpism and from kind of uh um kind of populist movements and all the rest of it um uh, that you know, actually, is democracy working? You know, is is this the way forward? Is there a kind of another another version? I mean, this is what what uh, um, Orban is doing in in Hungary. It's exactly what's happening in Poland. It's kind of very much the same policy of Erdogan in in Turkey. So you know, you I mean, the interesting thing about history, and this is why history is so important, this is why studying the Third Reich is so important, mm. is because I don't think history repeats itself, but I think patterns of human behaviour do. Yeah. And so you're, you, you, you know, and. And if you're studying um, the rise of Nazi Germany right now at school, living through what we're living through now in the last sort of 10, 12 years, I think it becomes increasingly more relevant because you can see those same patterns kind of repeating themselves. Obviously not so extremely, but you know, I think there's uh, particularly what's happening at the moment, I think there is, there is real cause for kind of, for everyone sort of keeping on their guard. And I think that's one of the reasons why everyone was so completely shocked by the scenes at the Capitol and why yeah. Trump really now is toast, because, you know, he crossed a line and, and, you know, that was that kind of incitement, you know, that kind of rhetoric that he was playing out and putting out on Twitter and on, on you know, and his missives and all the rest of it is pretty much exactly the same stuff that Hitler was doing in the early 1930s. Uh, and so you know, people sort of getting, but you know, your your stormtroopers are kind of going around sort of beating people up. You know, how can you how can you support that? It's I didn't know such thing. I didn't do anything. I just said, you know, proud yeah. need to stand up for their rights. You know, that's not the same thing at all. This is exactly the same as what's going on at the moment. Yeah, well, that, that, you make a really good
0: point with that, and it's cl- it's clear that Germany, the sympathy that the Allies may have for Germany, is kind of like. oh oh, we may as well kind of think it's not worth it. Um, Another point I think uh, it's important to remember is that a military strong Germany would be a buffer against the communist threat that the USSR posed to the western nations, so the USA especially was very suspicious of communism as we know uh, but later on with Truman and the Truman Doctrine and martial aid all of that and I think it it's just something that is kind of as you say out of out of nowhere it's not they don't see it to be very important and i think it's also another example of of the allies were working in their own self-interest which is i think also one of the reasons why the league of nations collapsed because if no one's willing to do anything about it because they're worried about their own armies their own navies you know their own just worried about the concept of war. Yeah,
2: it's, but it's, but I don't think it's. I, I think that sort of paints it that everyone sort of turned incredibly selfish. I think it's more of, of an. I think what you have to under, one has to understand is that each of these countries are facing absolutely unbelievable crises themselves. Yeah. And Britain's in. You know, Britain is suffering from the Great Depression as well. You know, we also have the nineteen twenty six general strike and all sorts of stuff. You know, there is there is huge poverty in in, in the UK, despite you know Britain having this enormous. Um, empire, the world's largest ever, uh, and having all these extra imperial territories as well. So, for example, uh, um, you know, Argentina is not British, and it's not a British colony or anything like that, but but British business owns vast tracts of Argentina. It owns the railways, it owns most of the farms, it owns most of the port facilities, blah, 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 blah. blah. And there's a very interesting map of 1937. It says it says global shipping 1937. And you can see these little ant lines of ships sort of going back and forth. And loads of them are going from South America back to Britain. Um, so although Britain has this empire, has this sort of, you know, at the crust, at the sort of top has this huge wealth, there is also extreme poverty. Um, you know, it's a bit like like any of these kind of sort of rapidly emerging nations, whether it be India, whether it be China, you know, side by side with the billionaires and millionaires, you've got you know the homeless and the streets and, and and all the rest of it and and you know you've got the slums and blah 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 <clears throat> you know and the whole reason that there's a there's a you know the beverage report comes out in 1942 and the whole reason there is a the welfare state that emerges post-war all comes out of the 1930s and 1920s when you know social care was really poor in the uk and, and, and exacerbated by the great depression so you know it's it's more a question that that The other nations, the other leading nations have their own problems. You know, United States is United States after the First World War, after the end of the Treaty of Versailles, comes back and goes, right, you know what? We're going to be isolationists now. And what that means by being isolationists, it doesn't just mean not having a big military. It also means we're just going to look after ourselves a bit. You know, we're going to make our own country strong. You know, we're a nation of immigrants. You know, we're apart from Europe. You know, look what happens when you go into Europe. You end up getting embroiled in a terrible war where kind of, you know, far too many young men die. You By know, isolationism, you know, isn't it? Like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that that's coming in as well. Then comes the Great Depression, which, of course, you know, its roots are in, um, of, of course, in the United States. And I think, I think you know, it's, it's... In France, you've got something like, I can't remember quite how many it is, something like 13 different governments in the 1930s alone. So it's, it's not like they haven't got their own things to worry about. You know, if, if everything was sort of plain sailing and they was you know, swanning along and democracy was cool and, you know, the economy was strong and everyone was happy and everyone had jobs, then you could start spending a bit more time on looking what's happening to your neighbour and sort of going, oh, what should we be thinking about, about the rise of communism? What should we be doing about the rise of Herr Hitler and all this kind of stuff? So I think it's, 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 it's less selfish and it's more that they just got their hands full. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a there's an awful lot of stuff that they've got to deal with at home before they can start sort of turning overseas. And you know, the government's first responsibility any any democratic government's first responsibility to is to its own nation, to its home nation. Now, of course of course that includes global security, because if global security is insecure, then that has a knock on effect. But, but, you know, it's the same with the UK now. You know, defence spending is really, really low, where obviously the Cold War is really high, despite having economic crisis, despite having three-day weeks in the 1970s. We still spent an absolute fortune, I'm talking like 5% of GDP or whatever it was. Yeah. On yeah. defence, we had an army of, you know, God knows how many, bunkers everywhere, air force, blah, 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 huge navy, etc., etc. You know, now we don't, because today, you know, and if you said to most people, do you think we should increase our defence spending? Most people will go, no we shouldn't we should sort out the nhs you
3: know that's
2: number one because so so you know and a government is only as good as the you know it's got to be voted in and we have this system where you can have and certainly i mean we now have a kind of fixed term parliament we didn't have one in the 1930s of course you know so you're sort of answerable to the electorate who voted you in and if they voted you in on a kind of sort of let's sort out our you know our own own issues first then that's sort of what you've got to do. So I think it's I think it's wrong to kind of place the blame too heavily on sort of selfish individual states who haven't got, have taken their eye off the ball. I suppose that's my point.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. One, thing, one thing's for sure, no one in Europe wants a second war. No one mm. can afford another war. So they no. will go out their way to achieve peace, I guess. And so for all of these reasons, the birth of the policy of... Appeasement. Experience. Well, it, well it, bega- it began in the
0: remilitarization of the Rhineland when Hitler and his and his men marched um, into the demilitarized zone oh, under I'd the treaty.
2: It. So, it, it's not like the secret intelligence services of France and Britain and the United States—well, not left the United States, but Britain and France—are not aware of some hint of of rearmament. And frankly, all you've got to do is just listen to Hitler. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, he's all his rhetoric is full of saber rattling. It's just that right then and there, the threat is not taken particularly seriously no. because why would Germany want to go through it again? You know, okay, so Hitler's a bit mad and he's a bit dictatorial and blah blah blah, but why would you want to do that? Uh, and why why would why you know? If, and if you read um, Mein Kampf, you know, it's all about Lebensraum. It's all about kind of the you know this this showdown with the East and with mm-hmm. communism. So it's you know. From, from from Britain's point of view, if Germany and, and the Soviet Union want to go, go head-to-head, sort of, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, let them. not quite as bad as that, but I mean, or, or sort of um, irresponsible as that. But, but you know, there is this sort of, A, they've got their hands full at home. Okay, you have to understand that, 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 that there's so much going on domestically. But also, it's not that Britain is not rearming. Uh, and I think it's really important that we understand that. that you know, what what do we mean by re We mean by massive upscaling of realm. But yes. the senior service for Great Britain in the 1930s, and previous to that, is the Royal Navy. And the real, Royal Navy is being upgraded all the time in the 1930s. And people sort of go, oh, well, you know, by 1939, we had these First World War battleships still. You know, can I just point out that USS Savannah was still operating, you know, on which the... Uh, um, um, uh, or was the Savannah or the Missouri, I can't remember. Anyway, one of the great battleships of the Second World War, yeah. on which the, the Japanese surrender was signed in 1945, was still in operation in the, in the US Navy in the Gulf War of 1992. So, you know, <laughs> you know, the superstructure of a battleship is enormously expensive to make. It is incredibly complex. So what you do, rather than rebuilding it and scrapping one battleship and rebuilding another one, you upgrade it. And that's yeah. that's been going on for kind of some time immemorial. And, and that is what the Royal Navy is doing in the 1930s. It, it is building new battleships, but it is also, and, and aircraft carriers, incidentally, uh, but it is also upgrading a lot of its existing shipping. And that is going on all the time. And that is because, in terms of defence, the most important thing that Britain has is the Royal Navy. And it's yeah. recognising that it needs to increase its air force. But, you know, admittedly, it's a little bit late late on on. With that, but no one has appreciated quite to the extent to which the Germans have clandestinely been building up the Luftwaffe. And when the Luftwaffe is announced mm. in the first part of nineteen thirty-five, that is quite a big deal because everyone's sort of going, "Whoa, holy moly!" You know, I had no idea they'd been doing all this. And we yeah. knew, you know, that we, you know, it was known in the West that the Germans were kind of sort of, you know, secretly doing. Bits and pieces but they didn't think it was quite as kind of far down the line as that and so then you're responding to that because you're recognizing that in terms of defense in the modern world it's not just naval power that works it's also air power as well traditionally britain has never had a large army and so uh but france traditionally has so you know what you have to remember from the alliance that britain signs with france in 19 early 1939 is that france is going to do the land bit britain is going to do the you know most of the naval bit plus a burgeoning air power bit um (coughs) The other thing that's important to know is that in the early part of the 1930s, Britain was the leading armaments producer in the world. So yeah. the idea that we've become sort of moribund defense-wise and not doing anything is just simply not the case at all. Yeah, and yeah. also the other thing is 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 it's perfectly possible to appease and rearm at the same time.
0: Mm. No, definitely that, 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 that's that's correct, and obviously, but I I, I also think with um, the attempted Anschluss of 1934, uh, Germany and Austria uniting, that's what it means in German, um, and obviously that failed because Italy didn't want that to happen. But I think the British and well, the Allies could have definitely picked up something from that as just think, hang on, this isn't right. What? what he's, he's, he's blatantly reversing the Treaty of Versailles, well,
1: which is British, British politician, I've got a quote here, Lord Lothian, said this in january 1935 so after the attempted Anschluss that was stopped by mussolini i am convinced that hitler does not want war what the germans are after is a strong army which will enable them to deal with russia so this perfectly shows how despite all these steps despite rearmament and despite the attempted union with austria what they're doing isn't seen as aggressive or hostile
2: well, I think I guess, but but you also you know historically think of Germany. You know, why does Germany? Why why does I mean the German the German states the princely states they come together in eighteen seventy one because it is perceived to be from a defence point of view they will be stronger together. We're better together. It's the same principle that the unionists are saying now. You know, well, why why would Scotland want to leave if we could all be better together? You know, we, we are stronger economically. Stronger uh, when you have a stronger economy, you also have a stronger defence budget. Uh, um, you know, stronger defences. You know we, we you have to also remember that i think in in germany's situation in central europe makes it very vulnerable it hasn't got access to the world's oceans it's got a little bit of the north sea is most of its coastline is, is um tied up in in the baltic and of course that had been um mostly taken away from it during the treaty of versailles as well so it hasn't got access to the world's oceans it's lost all its overseas uh, um colonies so it hasn't got any overseas strength whatsoever In terms of natural resources, Germany is not rich. So it is completely dependent on being a high-end mass producer of worthwhile products. And uh, so industry, engineering, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't have many resources itself. So that makes it also um, uh, dependent on outside resources coming in. So the flow of trade. The other problem is because it is in the centre of Europe, it's vulnerable from the west, from the south, potentially from the north as well, but also from the east. So it's very vulnerable. And there is a very, very real sense for a lot of Germans that they've lost their cushion, they've lost their buffer of defence, that they're vulnerable. And what Hitler is doing in the 1930s, no one in Germany wants war, very, very few, perhaps Hitler does in a few leading Nazis, but most people do not, the vast majority do not want war because they've seen what it does and how it's wrecked their nation. What they do want to do is feel secure and feel safe. So, what Hitler is doing is taking back the Rhineland. So, that's another bit of buffer against the West. Yeah. Then he's kind of um, signing the Unschluss in, in 19, 1938 with Austria. So, that's making them stronger as well. Austria, traditionally, you know, it's the Austrian Habsburg Empire, been one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And it's been reduced to literally nothing. And yeah. so. That has come back. So that's another big tick, kind of going back to kind of the glory days of the late 19th century, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, then you've got, um, you know, going into Czechoslovakia in 1939. Well, the, the, the Sudetenland in 1938, Czechoslovakia in 1939. And all of that has been achieved without a shot being fired. So if you're German, you go, Do you know what, this is freaking great. You yeah. know, we're strong again. We've got a military. No one's going to touch us. We're secure we're strong, all the rest of it. But of course, what they're not seeing is plans to then go into Poland and and take Poland and start the Second World War. And the reason why Lord Lovian and an awful lot of politicians think that Hitler doesn't want war is because going to war doesn't make any sense whatsoever because it's an insane decision because of what's happened in the previous history. It's completely unthinkable. It's, It's bonkers. And I think, you know, you can argue that in the Second World War, Hitler makes a series of catastrophic, misjudgments and errors which do ultimately lead to kind of armageddon in 1945 why you? argue and i think argue convincingly that the single worst decision he makes is to invade poland on the 1st of september 1939 because it's absolutely clear from the end of well really from the when he fails to win the battle of britain in 1940 but certainly by november 1941 by barbarossa has failed that they are going to lose the war they cannot possibly win after november 1941 not. No, no. Uh, the only strategic earthquake in the Second World War is Fall of France. That is the only thing that I think you can't predict beforehand. I think literally everything else is sort of slightly preordained.
0: Yeah. Well, the, obviously we know Hitler was a very poor military leader. I mean, even was it he, did you appoint was you appoint Speer to be his is um, Albert Speer the architect to be his his military leader in nineteen in early nineteen. In the yeah, early yeah so he's a very poor military leader. he has hes he's, he's a corporal in World War one. He's a little corporal. no one he, he doesn't understand sort of the concept of a big you know leading a big war. He was just all the time it was just you know oh, oh, let's just do this like crazy fanatical ideas which were part of national the idea of national socialism, the social hierarchy, social Darwinism, you know all of that.
2: But this is a big problem because because the, the, but the trouble is is <laughs> he thinks he's the greatest military leader ever, and, and the reason for that is because of his early successes and because um, you know he's surrounded by sycophants who tell him what he wants to hear. Uh, but you're absolutely right. He's it's actually not even a corporal. He's a lance effectively a lance corporal in the First World War. Um, but you know he hasn't had any military training. He hasn't been to staff college. He doesn't understand how. These things work. You know, he's got an incredible eye for detail. He has got some sort of big picture kind of understanding, but he's so ideologically driven that he can't see the wood for the trees. No. Uh, and also because he is a continentalist, he's a total landlubber um, and he doesn't understand the importance of, of naval power. You know, for him, it's all about the land battle. Yeah. Which is fine if you're going to you know concentrate on just winning in the in the East, which is his own intention. I mean his 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 intention is never to go to war with France or Britain. That's not the point. The point is to increase his empire, go into the Soviet Union, take over the Soviet Union, have his Lebensraum, role, and then we'll kind of sort of see what happens, but then sort of create the, the, the Fasnia Reich. And I'm sure his ambitions would have then gone an awful lot further. Yeah. But in the nineteen thirties, that is the limit of his his vision and his ambition. The problem is, Britain and France go. If you go into Poland, we will go to war with you. And he just thinks that's rubbish. He just thinks they're talking out that you know that's just an idle threat. You know, well because they, they said were, the same if, thing if they
1: were, about, you know, they, Sorry. Sorry, I, I, I was going to say they said the same thing about Czechoslovakia. They said if you right. go and annex the Sudetenland, we will wage war. They didn't. So. Right. So
2: understand it, but, but, but the stakes of the political stakes are have been completely ratcheted up by august and uh, by late august 1939 and it, it's 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 a it's a total political miscalculation that britain and france won't go into war and, and you know there is this terrible moment in the nazi leadership when britain and, and france do declare war and everyone goes Oh, um, so what do we do now? I mean, Goering says to Hitler, this is awful, this is terrible, this is this is the worst, this is the most biggest calamity ever, what are we going to do? Yeah. And Hitler goes, well, it's too late now,
0: we're just, you know, we're in. Goering, Goering himself was the chief of the Luftwaffe, he, he, you know, a great fighter pilot, I think he had 22 um what do they call it? Twenty-two um, aerial victories. Not yeah, aerial victories. Yeah, uh, he even though he was a great pilot, highly respected, but he had no idea how to run a a, a huge the, the main um, air force uh, oh, in
2: the country. Oh, 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 it was absolutely, absolutely hopeless. Uh, and this is this is one of the problems that when you when your military leadership is pretty incompetent, you know you you're, you're fighting with one hand behind your back. And I think what is what is. More impressive is that you know, I mean, we won't go into 1940 here, but I mean, the victory, the the miracle of 1940, the German miracle of 1940 of defeating France, you know, that is 50% German brilliance and 50% French ineptitude, and there's no two ways about it. But you know, fortunately, Britain underestimates naval power. He has no kind of sort geopolitical understanding in the same sense that Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, in the United States does, or Churchill does as Prime Minister of Britain, for example. Uh, and, he, and he fails to appreciate that the the, the Atlantic is the single most important theatre of the of the entire Second World War, bar none. Uh, and he just underestimates that. And he doesn't get it. Um, and you know, few. And thank goodness for that. But to go back to appeasement, uh, and you know why the British and the French don't kind of sort of show a bit more backbone. I mean, you know, put yourself in Neville Chamberlain's shoes in, in, in 1938. Could Britain have gone to war and would that have saved the Second World War? Probably, yes. Yeah, Maybe. Or well, they could have, got, they could have gone earlier, I think. They could have gone earlier, uh, they could have stopped. Could have earlier, yes, but, again, don't forget, Britain, France is going through a, 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 a political crisis. Okay, 13 governments, no one, you know, coalition governments in which you've got not just two government, uh, two parties like the coalition we had, uh, at the start of the last decade, very well in retrospect going, well, why on earth did the French do it? It would have been easy-peasy. They could have actually rolled over the Germans. Yes, they could, but there are these political constraints. And one of the things that one has to understand about any warfare is that political constraints always come into it. They always play a part. And they're, they are retrospectively often nonsensical, but they are very real at the time. And one has to put oneself into the in back into the prism of the 1930s, of this huge economic and political crisis which is sweeping over the Western world at the time. And and so the Germans want to go into the Rhineland recon it. Well, really, do we want to start a war which we can't afford? What happens if it all goes horribly wrong? What happens if, if you know, and perhaps anyway, we were a bit too harsh in Versailles. You know, perhaps they deserve, that. you know, we should sort of turn a blind eye, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's so many other factors coming into play here. The danger is that kind of you know, 80, 90 years on, that we go back and sort of go, Well, of course, what what should have happened is X, Y, and Z, you know, but you're not kind of in you're, you're not sort of putting yourself in the seat of those who are coming to have, make the decisions back in the 1930s.
0: Chamberlain, really? No, no, it was, it was well,
2: Chamberlain's an interesting case. I'm actually a bit of a defender of Chamberlain because, um, yeah. the, well, I am really, yeah, because he was really, really good when um, he stood down as prime minister. He, you know, he supported Churchill in an absolutely crucial. Uh, war yeah. and a clash on the Monday, the 27th of May 1940, which was the closest Britain ever came to losing the war, uh, which is when Churchill has his spat with Halifax, who's the, the, the foreign secretary. You know, it is Chamberlain, who was Chancellor to in 1935, um, insists on rebuilding the the RAF as a priority over the army. He was quite right to do so. Um, you know, this is my point. Yes, he might be um, in, into appeasement, but he's also uh, um, rearming at the same time. Uh, And there is also this this impression, because he sort of sounds slightly old-fashioned and old mannish, that that he's somehow sort of a bit of a pushover and sort of a bit weak and a bit wimpish. You know, I don't think he was at all. Um, You know, he was a, a, you know, the fact that we had Spitfires and Hurricanes in enough number in 1940 to defend Britain's skies was largely down, well, in a large part, down to Chamberlain. So You know, we shouldn't belittle it. Too much. No, no. You know, crap, prime minister in war. I mean, don't yeah, get me wrong. Yeah, you know, he's yeah. not the right person in nineteen thirty-nine. First. Of course, he, he accepted
0: that as
2: well. You know, I think. That was and he resigned. You know, on the ninth of May, 1940, he resigned. Um, yeah. But the crucial thing is, is that that Halifax, after the fall of, you know, clearly when France is going to fall, uh, and the BEF, the British Army, is in danger of being surrounded. Halifax is all for opening peace negotiations via the Italians, and Churchill's saying, "No, you can't do that. why don't you open the door." It goes wide open and there's no turning back. You cannot do that. In any way, to do so would be to um stitch up our ally, France. Yeah. You know, who we are still battling side by side with. you know, it might, it might be all over, you know, realistically, but they are still fighting. And and to 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 sue for to, for peace with another nation is against our alliance. You know, that's perfidy. You yeah. can't. Yeah. And Halifax goes, well, I don't see the the, the issue of, uh, I don't see there's any problem with just sort of, you know, putting out feelers and having a few conversations. And Churchill's going, you can't do that. You know, it's it sort of put the door ajar, it goes wide open. And Chamberlain sides with Churchill in that debate, crucially, because Chamberlain and and, and Halifax are bezies and they're super tight, and, and political colleagues for a long time. So you'd expect them to kind of, you know, go along with one another. And Chamberlain is immense in that, you know, and that saves Britain. You know, we nearly, we nearly lost the war just because of an internecine spat within the war cabinet. It was nothing to do with kind of, you know, planes and warships and and, and the army. So, you know, um, don't be too hard on Chamberlain.
1: No, you, just tell us a bit about, you know. Yeah, so let's focus more on Neville Chamberlain. So he was a real, really key figure in the development of the policy of appeasement. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, he supported it um, before he was eventually made Prime Minister in 1937, despite his little experience of foreign affairs. He believed that Germany had real grievances, and this was the basis of his policy. However, it's easy, Charlie, with hindsight, to say, uh, why why appeasement? Yeah, we. Of Yeah, as as James rightly said,
2: you know, for someone today, you wouldn't criticize them for going. You know what? Peace is better than war. Yeah,
1: the Treaty of Versailles was felt to be unfair. With the Rhineland, it was described as Germany's backyard. What's the point of making an aggression act that would spark war over such a tiny, fair enough move? I
2: think this is a really good point. I think I think there is a there is a sort of acceptance that that sort of taking back the Rhineland was probably kind of fair dues, really. Um, you know, as uh, the Anschluss is also a, is a, is a kind of a warning sign. But there's no question that that you know it is a popular popular vote within the Austrians, and you know if 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 sovereign nations want to uh, join together as one, then that is their right. You know that is part of democracy. So again, even with the Anschluss, it's kind of a little bit worrying. It's only really with the Sudetenland that it starts to kind of really, everyone starts to think, hmm, yikes, you know, that is forcibly taking away territory. That That is not good. And as I keep saying, there is simply no stomach for war. There is not the political will to do anything about it
0: no. up in
2: 1938. Oh, so yeah. you can argue the toss and go, well, they should have done, you know, we should have gone to war then and it would have all been over. Yes, probably. But but if there's not a political will in a democracy, you can't do it, and it's just you know, it's sort of irrelevant to even kind of discuss it. Well, okay.
0: one man, yeah, the, the one man that had the political stomach, of course, was Adolf Hitler, and that made it a dangerous. I suppose it made it made the whole you know thing dangerous because Hitler is obviously going to keep pressing away, keep um, uh, uh, keep biting away territory from the Allies until they. Him what they want, he wants sorry, Hitler wants a war because that's you know a um, fundamental part of the national
2: socialist ideology, which is the struggle for war. Yes, of course, but 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 if you're if you're if you're Neville Chamberlain and and um you know if you're um Deladier, you're you're kind of you're, you're thinking well. The last thing we want to do is get our, our nations. We don't want to be responsible for embroiling our nations in, a, in another war, a pan-European war in which millions of our young men get slaughtered again. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're them, it makes no sense for Hitler to risk war with France and Britain because France and Britain are considerably stronger than Germany is economically and globally. Uh, and, and frankly, even militarily. I mean, you know, France has a bigger army, has uh, uh, a bigger navy. It has um, an air force, which is um, on par with, with um, Germany in 1939. On top of that, you've got Britain, which has the world's largest navy, as the world's largest empire, as the world's largest extra imperial empire. Um, global sh- global reach, access to around 80% of the world's merchant shipping. You know, why would you risk that? I mean, you know, no one is gambling is going to think that's a good bet. And indeed, nearly every single kind of commander in the Wehrmacht, in the German armed forces, is going to go to war with Britain and France would be insane. We will lose. Yeah, you know, so it makes no sense for 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 Hitler to kind of do it. yes, okay, at some point have a war with the Soviet Union, whatever. But but you know, it's understandable that they would underestimate Hitler's saber rattling. In 1938, yeah, as I say, there is also no political will for it, and I can understand entirely why, Ch- why why Chamberlain is prepared to give Hitler the benefit of the doubt in 1938.
1: Yeah, well, he the, does give Hitler the benefit, the benefit of the doubt,
2: of um, and, and then but that changes with the betrayal of of Czechoslovakia in March 1939, and everything changes. And at that moment, it is right, okay. I was wrong, Hitler can't be trusted, now it gets serious. And yes. so that's when the defence of um, Poland comes into play and the threat of war starts to kind of rear its ugly uh, rear, rear head, and, at which point there is clearly, you know, Hitler's gone too far. But I think, you know, if you put yourself in Chamberlain's shoes, I think, I think all his decision-making is entirely reasonable.
1: Yeah, all justified. Chamberlain becomes a national hero after the Munich conference of 1938, stepping off the plane with the... Hitler's promises in his hands, assuring peace, peace and then just a matter of months later, the country's at war.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the failure of appeasement is this: that what Hitler is able to do is pick off his enemies one by one. Um, and what 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 they should have done that the moment the Anschluss was signed, I think they should have, um, I think Britain and France should diplomatically have come together and created a watertight um defense treaty with czechoslovakia with poland with holland um, belgium would have done it because it's always neutral um but with many nations with denmark with as many nations as they possibly could um and tried to get italy on side as well um because italy only does science still the of still really because it's so shit scared about um uh, germany invading italy um rather than because you know, Hitler and Mussolini are kind of absolutely tight. And that would have prevented Hitler, I think, from being able to go to war and and being able to invade Czechoslovakia and invade going to Poland. The problem is, of course, again, is history. And that what led to the First World War in the perception of France and Britain is those interlinking, interlinking alliances. And so after the First World War, there is a there is a desire to move away from such alliances, so that in, in the future, you can't get embroiled in a war because of an alliance. So that is what is mitigating against that. But I think in terms of the 1930s, that is the only course that should have been pursued. And what is interesting about it is there is absolutely no attempt to do that whatsoever. And I think that is, that is the failure of appeasement. It is not not going to war in nineteen
1: thirty eight. Okay, so there we have it. Um through the remilitarization of the Rhineland, the annexation of the Sudetenland, the Anschluss with Austria, and ultimately the invasion of Poland, we are now at the beginning of the Second World War. Whether this was all down to Hitler's tactical foreign genius, genius or the policy of appeasement adapted by Chamberlain and others. Up for debate. Mr. Holland, thank you so much for joining us. We have really valued your time. It's so, a pleasure. Yeah, just thank you so Good much. Good
2: night. Um, you know, it's really nice that you're so into the subject and doing what you're doing. So um, I take my hat off to you. Thanks for
0: having yeah, me. Um, yeah, so definitely give James's podcast a listen, guys. Oh, yeah, we we have a awesome. podcast. Um, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, do you have a listen to that. Uh, I've, I've, I've listened to that myself. I quite enjoy thank it. 250 man. episodes to choose from. so yeah, yeah. And rising. Yeah, and rising. Yeah, so definitely give that a listen. Thank you, James, um, and we'll, we'll join you later for
3: our political section. Thank you. It's reload time. Okay, it's rewind, reload
4: time. Time. Ah, rewind
1: time. It's okay, rewind time. For today's political discussion discussion section we are joined by two guests familiar face hugo you might remember taking part in a brexit debate a few episodes ago hello hugo hello
4: it's, it's a pleasure to be back
1: it's lovely to have you back and famously not socialist new face to the podcast sean
3: hello i'm not like that socialist, but you know
1: okay well last time i introduced you as a socialist okay it doesn't matter anyway in this discussion we will talk about the united states of america they lasted merely a week into the new year 2021 before once again taking global political headlines having been urged on by their messiah trump supporters broke into the capitol building sending shockwaves across the world so
4: um well i think you know donald Donny d Donny t as i like to call him he's a close mate of mine but also joking aside um i don't like him he's not a great guy i mean not many no. personally, i just i think that i think that if you lose an election you, you just accept it mate just just accept it Because you can't, like, it just undermines democracy as a whole. I mean, I don't know about the rest of the world, but it certainly undermines democracy for America and makes me quite fearful of what will happen in the next election. You know, will there there be more riots? And I think that the key thing is he's just not very smart. He doesn't have a lot of brain cells. So, you know, when he he says to the Georgian, you know, states, you know, the the Georgian head of vote counting, you know, find 11,500 votes. I, I just question his team, but you know the team behind him. Do they not go look, Donald? You can't say fine votes. That's not how elections work. That you can't yeah. make more votes. It's not a thing. So yeah. I think that generally, it's just it's it's a shocking, shocking situation, a shocking time for the world, and and it, it throws into question everything we've ever thought about about democracy because the capital assault was well. Ridiculous. I think uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, referred to it as the second Crystal Act during uh, as of during uh, during the uh, Nazi occupation. Um, but yeah, I just think it was it was quite ridiculous. And I think that the people going—I don't know how many there were, maybe a thousand. Um, I reckon they had a combined IQ of twenty-three. I would imagine that maximum.
3: Yeah, maximum. I, think, I
0: think I think what's been you know much of a debate in the. Press as well as the, and obviously on social media, is that had this been a Black Lives Matter protest, this would the, the, oh, they'd probably been gunned down, you know, yeah. gas, everything, the whole package. And this, these guys are wearing, you know, camp Auschwitz t-shirts, white supremacist Confederate flags, flying all over the place. It's just, it was really a disgrace. But it, you know, it, it, I guess, American racism and institutional racism has kind of proved its point to many people across the world who've who've been disputing this this argument that, oh, America maybe isn't institutionally racist, because it is, it clearly is. No, yeah, man. I, I definitely okay, agree
4: with so that.
1: Okay, so one thing's think... for sure is that whatever stance you have on this situation, Trump has had a it's huge... It's bad. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Trump has had a huge impact on both America over the past four years, and on the rest of the world. So using the at the historic president podcast Instagram account we've asked our followers their views on this so we've asked a few questions and the first question we asked was has the Trump era permanently damaged USA's reputation 86% of the voters said yes they do think that for well the question says permanently I don't I don't agree that um, the US will be remembered for what is, for what Trump has done over the past four years. Sean, what what do you think about this? I
3: don't think that um, their reputation will be damaged permanently. No, but
4: I think I strongly disagree. I strongly disagree. Firstly, Sean, you're very serious. blood. You're very attractive. And thirdly, I think that it has permanently damaged the U.S. Permanently. Because if you think about future presidents and future people running for president, they will look back on this moment and go, well, I mean, I've lost, but have I really lost? can I find some more votes? And I just think that every election from now on has the potential to turn into chaos. Yeah. From, from both,
1: make a very
3: good you know, point. voters,
4: uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans. So I think that, yes, it actually probably will be permanently damaged. But also, to go back to point two, Sean, you're very good looking. That's, yeah. <laughs> give, give, let's give it PG, boys. Um... That was, what are you talking about, Charlie? Charlie, <laughs> how significant
1: yeah. has Trump's four-year reign over the u.s been
0: um i think it has been quite significant in terms of foreign policy and international relations because um you know he has you know i think calmed obviously we had a bit of a i think he had a blip with north korea in you know, 2017 but he managed to um get over That's that and shake shaking hands with um you know kim jong-un having a meeting with him and i think you know he's he's done i think he's done a lot economically but i think the division
1: you no, know he hasn't has, what's the he done economically he charlie what's he done economically he's unemployment. no,
4: he, no hasn't. he hasn't he's
1: had the worst employment
3: rate of any president sure. in u.s history
4: bottom line is he's done nothing he's done nothing good
0: okay, my point that i was okay my point is is that he has caused the most division but you support
3: a far-right group
0: the, the republicans aren't far right i think mean, part of it is but part of it's um my point is is that he's the one he's the person he's the president that has caused the most division out of any president or in my opinion world leader of the modern era because he yeah, he's had a good four-year term he no he hasn't he
3: hasn't well, Okay. He, but the i would say robert
0: mugabe might have then. given him a run for his money
3: in that little well, right, competition.
0: I speak, please. Keep
3: um, sure, just Kim Jong Il for her out there.
0: Um, what what I mean is that he incites violence by being not just politically incorrect, which is not a huge problem, but he's he does it actively. He tries to, you know, he calls people out. He name shames. He's he's you know he's. He he makes remarks on Twitter about certain people, and he just again causes a lot of division, and, co- and has caused this um, sort of group of far right extremists on the Republican um, side that hate the Democrats and hate and think that Trump should be their fascist dictator. When and you, Trump can argue that this is. Because it's uh, got nothing to do with him. Because th- these people aren't under his Are control. Are you calling but, you know, the majority
1: we... of the capital building um, protesters far right extremists? I think yeah, I think so. Yeah. Really? Because they're they're, they're, bre- they're preaching the majority democracy? of the um, BLM rioters far left extremists. No. no. So it doesn't
3: have anything to do with them, the political not spectrum. Not it's about what,
1: equality why, why would you say this is extremism but the... because they're
4: challenging democracy itself yeah, challenging the democracy. Yemen protesters were just challenging for equality which is deserved yeah. but i where it should okay. be a human right playing as the devil's yeah.
1: advocate here would you not say that these protesters were just acting on the words of their leader
4: well i think they were but i would still no. say all yeah. right it's, it's, yeah. it's how many republican votes are there in the u.s and there's a very small percentage that have decided that they're going to storm the Capitol building for a
3: revolution. And, and Jonah, may I just pose one question to you? If Donald Trump jumped off a bridge, would you do it?
1: I'm playing devil's advocate, Sean. It was just a question. I'm just interested. I know, but it felt quite personal and directed at me. I didn't like that. Okay.
3: I'm sorry. It's because you asked the question. I was just playing devil's devil's advocate. You know.
1: If god's advocate um at the time of speaking um u s Congress are deciding to whether they should vote or well, no they are going to vote for the second time on whether Trump should be impeached or not, so that will send quite a clear message what their stance on this is now in a few weeks' time, Biden will now take over from Trump. And another question we asked on the polls was, is it wrong for Trump to miss Biden's inauguration? As Trump has said, he will not be attending President Biden's inauguration. 83% of the voters said that it is wrong for Trump to miss Biden's
4: inauguration. Hugo, what are
1: your thoughts on this?
4: My thoughts are why isn't it 100% saying yes? Because I feel like it's clearly... (sighs) It, it's, it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier of, of tradition and, like, you know, how America has followed democracy for the last, well, however many you know years it's, it's been in this system. I think that him missing it will then send messages to future presidents who think that they can just flout or break the rules, break traditions that should, should be adhered to and, and followed, and I think that, I think, for his sake, to be honest, I think what would have been best for him would be Clean break, you know, accept his loss, to get out of the White House and just be, you know, a normal human being. Whereas now he's going to, he's probably going to get impeached, which I think he may not have done before the Capitol. And he, uh, he might also get arrested for his, uh, you know, there's loads of criminal investigations against him. And I think that if he hadn't said, oh, he's, I'm not going to the inauguration, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, he would have been fine. Whereas now I think he's going to get uh, banged up.
2: Sure.
3: I think there's only really one word for for that action and it's childish. He is kind of acting like a five year old. Yeah,
0: immature. It's true. Hmm. Yeah. No, that is that is correct.
1: Um, okay, political so, world. So far in the past yeah. we've had clear landslides. Eighty-six percent um have said yes, the Trump era has dealt significant damage to the USA's reputation. Eighty-three percent have said yes. It is wrong for Trump to miss Biden's inauguration. Sean calling him childish. But this, the next question saw a much more evenly divided uh, outcome. Forty-four percent voting yes. Fifty-six percent percent voting no. The question: Will Biden weather the storm? Hugo. Uh,
4: I would I would say I just I, I don't think he will. He's he's just he's he's too old to be a president. And it's just a simple fact he's too old. He he needs too much sleep to be able to function and be a president. And I think that the only way he will, you know, weather the storm as it were is if Kamala Harris pretty much takes over presidency and, and runs it, you know, runs it runs through Biden but for herself and I think that that is a potential to happen but I think that yeah. overall the, the, the issues that Trump has left America with with you know with COVID with unemployment with you know everything really yeah I don't think he is the man to be able to fix America's problems. I just don't
0: well as I said in I think a previous episode, I think episode one, I said that um I don't think Biden is has the um ability and the, um, the, he's just too old to run on the world's um, largest geopolitical superpowers in the world and be able to do that uh, consistently. And let's just do the maths. He, I think he's at 78 now, isn't he? 78 or 77. He'll be in his early 80s by the next um, election. And I think I can definitely see Kamala Harris standing um, as president uh, with a with new vice president. But but I do think Biden will um, definitely turn his attention to COVID and bringing the vaccine programme, making the the vaccine programme much more um, effective and try and, I guess, heal America. I think that's what he's going to try and do. Whether he'll be successful or not, I don't know, but I I hope there'll there'll be some certain things that he will be successful in doing.
1: Sean, what's more important, the COVID situation or balancing the polarised divide on the political scene
2: at the moment in the US? I would say
3: that they're of equal importance but Covid is more of a short-term goal whereas that divide is a much like it'll be a very long hard challenge for presidents to come for many years and I think since America was founded there have been Issues with this divide. And no president has really been able to solve that issue. So I don't think you can put it on a four year period for one president to try and solve this huge divide in America. But I think it would be more important to focus on the short term coronavirus situation for the first few years until it's sort of settled down. And then take your time trying to solve the issue of the massive
1: divide in America. That's a great point. Okay, and the last poll we asked, we all know Trump has a huge social media presence. One of the majority one of the huge reasons why there were protests in the Capitol building was because of his calls on social media. So the question we asked, should Trump be permanently be permanently banned? from all social media sites. We know he's been handed temporary bans on sites such as Twitter. But should he be banned permanently? Eighty-five percent said yes, he should be banned. Hugo, you're shaking your head.
4: I I don't I don't think he should, to be honest. I mean I know that's controversial, but I just at the end of the day, after he's not president, there's nothing he can really do, and I think that it's, it's unfair, because because he's he, you know he's got a far-right opinion, yes, but it's an opinion nonetheless, and I think it's unfair to censor someone's opinion with that high of a following. I mean, he's not, he's not you know, it's not like he's a terrorist. He's not going out telling people to commit, you know, crime or anything like that, but I think that censoring his views... Isn't
3: it a crime? Sorry, isn't it a
4: crime to storm the Capitol building there? He didn't. He did not directly tell his followers to do that. He didn't, he didn't cite it, but he, he didn't like it. But that's my point: is that you should be able to get both sides of the media. Like, I don't think you should. You should only, you know, like it's like newspapers. You shouldn't read one left wing newspaper and that's it. You should read one white right wing newspaper as well. I think you need a balance of political views. And I think censoring and removing Trump off social media would would uh, would, would would stop that from happening. And I think that's unfair
3: i agree I said, but uh, i think it's also the point of um libertarianism is to in like try and include everyone's opinions and if you have someone's views who disagree with including everyone you can't simply censor them because then you're breaking your own rules of libertarianism of course so you
0: don't want to double standard you don't, you don't want to do that
3: exactly
1: we also ask some of our followers for more broader thoughts on the current situation. Um, Funnily enough, just as Hugo drew a comparison between Trump's America and Hitler's Nazi Germany, Sam Friedman has drawn another comparison. He said, this presidency has exposed the cracks in their democracy through a Beer Hall Putsch-like attack on their democracy. The political landscape will be changed forever. What are your thoughts on this comment? Yeah, yeah. I think I think Sam has got a good. I think Sam's got a fair point. I think I I don't. I don't. I don't don't agree with the Munich putsch.
0: Pardon? Is it as uh, Hitler leading? No, no, it's not quite the same. It was. I think it was on the 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 Munich putsch was on a much lower scale. It was only in Munich, obviously. It wasn't really. No one, which
1: everyone was armed with guns.
0: Lower. Lower scale. Yeah, on a lower scale. Yeah. I think that's no, there were far less people. There, was, there were there were far less people in the Munich Putsch. I mean, well, the obviously the stormtroopers were there as well, but yeah, it, it was it was a huge failure. There was badly planned, and it didn't really cause that much harm. the The, 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 the total result was not um, very. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a terrible result. It wasn't. You know, this is the Capitol building in America. It's a symbol of democracy and free opinion, which is what America stands for as a nation. And Trump supporters have walked all over that. I think the comparison to the Beale pitch is, I don't think is, um, I don't think match. I don't think it matches up. But I, I see where Sam has a point with, you know, the political landscape will be changed forever. We don't know that for certain. We can't. We don't. I don't, I don't think it will be. Because I think that you know there'll be time for healing. Forever is a long word, because that's it is a is a strong word because that's, you know, permanently. But I think it'll be temporary for a few years, certainly.
3: Yeah, I think that it's an interesting comparison to make considering the circumstances that each um happened with the Beer Hall push. There was they were in political turmoil and there was no real stability within Germany as a nation at the time. Whereas here it was a like it was an assault on the Capitol building in America, which is relatively stable compared to modern day countries and far more stable than Germany was at that time. So it's the are completely different. The New Republic situations. was only four years old at
0: the time. So yeah, you make a good point of that.
3: Exactly. exactly. It's a completely different situation. Whereas this is kind of more of a shock to a stable country, whereas that was like the Nazis trying to take advantage of an already weakened government.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I think that this event may not have changed the political landscape forever, but I think Trump's presidency will. I think every presidency, you know, changes, changed the American political landscape at least by a little bit. And I think this, this more than most, will have, will have changed it. But we'll have to wait and see on, uh, on how, how it's changed.
3: Dan... ultimately we want
4: Ooh. Kanye 20 ultimately, ultimately
1: yeah. Jeffree Star um Dan Zamansky comments more on American democracy he says it's awful that their own president does not accept the election result with no concrete evidence thank you Dan for that Adam Kassam says it has been a horror show for ages with the two-party system Gerrymandering and voter disenfranchisement—I definitely pronounced that wrong. Um, it
0: doesn't take the meaning away. I think. I think. Yeah, the two contemporary main parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. I think it, it does provide a, it does provide the country with a lack of choice um, over a president. Obviously, the last. I think the last two um, elections we've had really. You know, poor choices for President Clinton and Trump, Trump and Biden. All of them very old. I mean, not, I'm not being ageist here, but I think you know, it is a, it is a driving it is a driving factor in um, how a person is can provide their energy towards a campaign and running such a big country such as the USA. And I think yeah, I think there needs to be um, more of a landscape for you know other political parties come through we can see that with the uh the libertarians led by Joe jorgensen i mean you know fairly insignificant in the election but and also i think with the electoral college system it does make it very difficult for any sort of third party party to the other two to get anywhere near winning any votes charlie,
4: they, they could that's, yeah, they could that's but the, american people, yeah, but the american people could vote for them charlie if they believed in their ideas so i don't think it's the the two, I don't think it's really the two-party system because it's not a two-party system. You could There's lo, there's loads of parties in each state, and they, they you know they get votes. But if they had a more concrete plan and more people you know got behind them, then they surely would have more votes. I think it would help like, if the
0: media gave them more attention. I
4: think. Yeah, no, that is. I agree. The media always hail a two you know Democrats versus Republicans.
0: That's that's all people really think about. You know, Trump v. Uh, Biden. That was all it was. No one mentioned Jorgensen. No one mentioned. I can't remember his name. The leader of the Green Party. It was very much, you know, it's a two-horse race every time. That's what it seems to be, and it could have some change. I agree with Charlie
3: on this one.
1: Often happens. Okay, we will wrap it up there. We have gone on for a long time. Thank you very much, Sean, for joining us. Thank you very much, Hugo, for returning to us
4: um i'd love to be back again Jonah, at some point we'll we'll love to have
1: both of you back on again um 2024 yeah well maybe we'll be back here in four years time discussing the next presidential election anyway that's the end of today's episode thank you very much
4: mean Charlie the fascist um uh I love Don Kanye
2: Trump. Kanye, Kanye Yeah Kanye
4: 2029
2: 20, finished now going to draw plan now and uh thanks for listening folks yeah, yeah that kind of